Welcome to the JNMP podcast. My name is Elizabeth Hyten, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Professor Andrew Lees and Dr. Sean O'Sullivan. Andrew is the Professor of Neurology at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery, Queen's Square London and University College London. He has achieved international recognition for his work in Parkinson's disease. He's also recently published our book, uh, which is our theme for today's podcast, uh, titled Mentored by a Madman, The William Burroughs Experiment. So some might find it surprising that William Burroughs, author of Naked Lunch, played a role in the career of the world's most highly cited Parkinson's disease researcher. Uh, The book is a fascinating read, spanning Andrew's illustrious career in medicine, how he drew from Burroughs' insight, as well as from his scepticism and disdain for authority. We also gain an insight into Burroughs' search for the junk vaccine and its impact on Andrew's work and pharmacological explorations in Parkinson's. We're also very pleased to be joined by Sean O'Sullivan, who's a consultant neurologist and clinical senior lecturer at Cork University Hospital in Ireland. Sean and Andrew actually worked together in the Queen's Square Brain Bank in London, as Andrew was in fact one of Sean's PhD supervisors. Sean recently wrote a really fantastic review of Mentored by a Madman for the JNMP, which you can of course download from our website. Uh, So thank you so much, Andrew and Sean, for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks very much, Liz, for the invitation. It's great to be here. Um, just from the outset, I want to make a disclosure that I made in my review as well. I'm proud to say that I still consider myself a, a mentee of Andrew Lee's, but I don't think I've been uh, mentored by a madman. Uh, <laughs> but I do think I speak for the, the, like the large international tribe of former fellows when I say we've been very lucky to have such a unique and influential mentor in our lives. Um, following on, Andrew, I suppose from this, I guess a key theme of, of the fascinating book was the importance of choosing your mentors wisely. And uh, before we get into the talking about Burroughs, uh, I particularly enjoyed your description of the variety of influences on your character and your professional life, you know, ranging from the eminent Queen Square respectable neurologist to the fictional Sherlock Holmes. I guess what advice would you give to future mentees when choosing a mentor and advice to mentors, I guess, on how to help best their uh, mentees? Well, one thing I would give is the advice Sherlock Holmes gave to Watson, which was, you see, but you do not observe. And uh, I think fellows need to uh, try to understand that distinction uh, and the importance of it, particularly in neurology, which is very much a visual uh, art, uh, as well as, of course, a, a hardcore science. I think, Burroughs, you were saying that your medical school should maybe teach values and not facts. Is this kind of something you reflected on and pass on to your mentees? Very few of us get the opportunity to choose our teachers, but uh, our teachers are, of course, extremely important, not just in directing the trajectory of our career, but uh, advising us and teaching us once we've chosen our uh, speciality of neurology, and I was very fortunate to end up uh, in a, a sort of liberal institution that um, encouraged me to think very much outside the box and also to self-experiment. Um, as, I, as I mentioned in the book, William Goody, when on a first ward round, who was one of my first teachers, recommended that I should steer away from textbooks of neurology, such as Brain's textbook of neurology, which was the the main textbook being used at that time by neurological trainees. Uh, and to, of course, as in, in the tradition of Osler, that we, we, we learn our neurology at the bedside by listening carefully, paying attention to detail, 
uh, and perfecting a systematic examination. But he also suggested that uh, I go back and read the complete works of Sherlock Holmes, which I'd read, uh, as many of us did as schoolboys, uh, and also uh, read Marcel Proust, which took me a lot longer to read, of course, and uh, uh, it was more difficult for me at that time to relate that to the relevance of neurology. But of course, Proust really was a, uh, a neuroscientist and he understood uh, time, uh, the neurology of time, uh, much better than I think some of the molecular scientists who are trying to unravel it today. So the, the, these were very uh, good pieces of advice uh, early on. Now, uh, Burroughs, um, I think, comes in because what, what I was trying to do in my book is I don't expect that many of my fellows will take William Burroughs as their main mentor, but I think what, what I'd like them to do is to have a mentor outside their chosen area of expertise or their profession. Uh, I mean, neurology is not is an art, and in order to um, get the best out of the business of neurology, we need to take the best from all sorts of different things. If you're a rocket scientist, I'm sure you can, or you're interested in rocket science, you can take bits of rocket science and bring them into neurology. And this is the phenomenon, which is a variation of uh, serendipity called Alta Mirage, which I discuss in the last chapter. It's, it's a sort of um, combining of um, a, a, an individual's personal hobbies and interests into their everyday job. And if you look at the history of advancement in neurology, uh, this crops up far more than people would like to admit. Of course, if you're a aspirant Nobel laureate, you want to hide your sources as much as possible. But the reality is that much of um, particularly therapeutics in neurology and in psychiatry uh, comes out of serendipity. And um, Burroughs, of course, people know and uh, acknowledge as a, an exponent of science fiction. He was a great influence, for example, on J.G. Ballard. Um, uh, and he was very interested in uh, magic uh, and wanted science to be more magical and mag magic to be more scientific. Uh, and I, I was taught, I think, early on that you needed to make neurology romantic if you wanted to keep interested in it. If you reduced it to measurement uh, and clinical rating scales, uh, we'd all be out of a job pretty soon because um, if all we do is measure things, um, uh, and create algorithms. This can be done just as well by nurses as it can by neurologists. And it won't be long before research nurses will be replaced by robots. Um, Burroughs actually uh, was a very scientific person. In fact, Timothy Leary, um, when he was asked about Burroughs in a 1989 interview said, uh, Burroughs is a very scientific person. The only psychedelic he likes is marijuana. Burroughs has forgotten more about drugs in his life than I've learned. Burroughs is in charge of his life. He knows what he's doing. But Burroughs, he's not the guy that goes around with a grin on his face, telling everybody to drop out, saying peace and love. He's a very crusty, introverted guy with a deep sense of humor. So throughout his life, Burroughs uh, read 
modern science. I mean, I suppose it would be the equivalent now of reading the New Scientist every week. And he was very keen to collaborate with scientists, but mo most, of course, ignored him because he was a, uh, a junkie um, and outside society's norms, uh, really, so that he, uh, I think one of his regrets was that he, he his pronouncements were not taken more, more seriously uh, by uh, scientists because he felt that he had something to contribute, not only through his own self-experimentation, but through his, his observations about things. So I, I, I learned to think outside the box and be less rigid from somebody like Burroughs. And I found that a number of the intersections in his work and what I was interested in led to certain research directions that I took, not least um, the resurrection of apomorphine, which had been used to cure Burroughs in London by John Dent for his narcotic addiction, my resurrection of it in the use of as a treatment for Parkinson's disease depended partly on reading The Naked Lunch. And then his understanding of what addiction was when we described the dopamine dysregulation syndrome in the Journal of Neurology and Neurosurgery and Psychiatry in 2000. I mean, I found the psychobabble of much of the neurobiology of addiction almost incomprehensible, whereas if I went back and read Junkie and Naked Lunch, I, I really got a handle on uh, the mechanisms which uh, underlay addiction. And in fact, if you read Burroughs, um, he anticipated by more than 30 years um, some of the modern theories of addiction, such as, for example, uh, that it want rather than like, and the concept of reinstatement where once you've been sensitized to narcotics, even if you uh, are off them for many months, you become an addict again the, the first time you're re-exposed to it. Whereas when you first start taking narcotics, it takes several months before you actually get hooked. So th these are kind of pharmacological principles now that he um, discovered by... Uh, using his brain as a kind of petri dish for self-experimentation. And Andrew, I suppose we're all for uh, bringing back the romance uh, in neurology and uh, thinking outside the box, but do you think that your confession, as it were, of being a disciple of Burroughs, you know, could have been a professional risk to you if you'd written this book earlier in your career? And I think you, you mentioned how the late Dr. Oliver Sacks, for example, when he kind of crossed the line with his publication style, you know, he was considered maybe a bit of an eccentric do you think you could have, you know, was this a risk you, um, you, you felt that was worth taking and maybe uh, it would have been more difficult to do it earlier in your career? Yeah, I, I mean, I regret not doing it earlier in my career, but um, I was frightened of authority. Uh, I still am, actually. Um, and uh, I think, of course, it's difficult for the young trainees to understand what British neurology was like in the 1970s, for example, where... There were only 300 neurologists and a, a system of patronage was very strongly in place. So if you put one foot out of step, your career was ruined and you couldn't, there was nowhere to escape to apart from, of course, as Oliver did, escape to the United States. There was nowhere else to go. So I, I realized pretty early that t talking about William Burroughs and the doctor's mess wouldn't be good for my 
future career. Uh, so in a sense, I feel a bit of a, a coward having done this book uh, at a time when my career is in its autumn, shall we say, where, you know, it, it's, it, it's easier to whistleblow, if you like, and expose some of the problems that I think are really prevalent now in medical research. I, I don't think Burroughs, of course, is a good model for uh, the business of neurology, but I think he can teach us things uh, that can be helpful in trying to get round some of the obstacles and roadblocks uh, that are present now in medical research. So he, he's a guru for medical research, not a guru for neurological practice. In fact, um, he wanted to become a psychiatrist after he'd graduated at Harvard in American literature and anthropology. And he enrolled uh, for a course in medicine at the University of Vienna just before the Second World War broke out. But he, he dropped out within a few weeks from the course. And I've spoken to some of his uh, close friends who apparently breathed a sigh of relief when uh, when he dropped out of uh, medicine because they thought he'd end up rather like Dr. Benway, uh, the notorious uh, antithesis of good medical practice that is in many of Burroughs' books. Do you think that you know, modern medicine still has a place for kind of radical thought and maybe this slightly less scientific approaches to problem solving? We need to try and get that back. I mean, one of the problems is that the little man is now being driven out so that mavericks like Patrick Steptoe, who discovered in vitro fertilization, Charnley, working in a little district general hospital in Wigan, who developed the hip replacement. These sort of guys are getting more and more marginalized. They haven't got the... Uh, manpower to apply for grants and we've got this enormous hype uh, in medicine you know twitter uh, uh, fake stories and Bur burroughs anticipated all this as as people who are paranoid often do uh, he was very prescient and he he not only railed against the iniquities of the pharmaceutical industry um but he also saw the shortcomings of uh, the medical establishment and universities. And uh, I think I kind of learned something from that, too, that you could do wacky things and that sometimes wacky things were the things that were needed uh, and would pay off. I mean, one of the dangers now, I think, with uh, neurological scientific research is that uh, we're putting all our eggs in one basket. So... You, you and I know that, for example, everything now is synuclein, uh, the BRAC hypothesis, um, all the money is going into developing uh, vaccines and so on. And, and nobody's, no, nobody's really challenging that in a serious way. For example, if you were to write a book like I've written now, I mean, you, you may get drummed out of the regiment, you know, so people are frightened to stick their head above the parapet. I think a lot of the listeners will know you pioneered a number of therapeutic interventions for Parkinson's, things like bromocryptine and selegiline and, of course, the apomorphine. And speaking of wacky things, I think Burroughs would be very proud of your willingness to self-experiment with things like apomorphine and selegiline. You might tell the listeners a bit about your own adventures with selegiline, firstly, both from the kind of unorthodox uh, personal experience and then maybe the more scientific perspective. When I started as a registrar at UCH, um, it was considered to be the 
height of ethical responsibility to self-experiment. It wasn't even questioned. I mean, and ethics committees kind of almost accepted that it was a, a rational approach. So there was this sort of idea that um, uh, clinical pharmacological research carried out even on ho in hospital beds um, would would was appropriate, you know, that it, we, it the research should be really built into job descriptions of doctors and that a doctor who wasn't doing any research was, a, was not a proper doctor, at least one working in a, an academic teaching hospital. And of course, that's another change that uh, has happened and I think a regrettable one. So when we, I, I I, can, I mean, I learned also in, in my research early on that, of course, neurologists who try to be neuroscientists are often disappointed and often fail. Uh, and I, I think science is so, you have to be so single-minded to be a good scientist that you can't uh, see patients half the week and do good science the other half the week. I just don't think that model works. So my... My, one of my teachers, Gerald Stern, taught me very early on that the best way to do research is to collaborate with um, scientists. And you have to choose your scientists, of course. There have to be scientists who uh, understand the significance of disease uh, rather than just being a sort of bunker uh, focused on, uh, on the little detail that they're working on. Um, uh, and of course, as neurologists, we have to try and understand science to a certain degree as best we can. So we, I got the opportunity to um, try uh, selegiline or deprinil, as it was known at that time, uh, through our scientific collaborations with somebody actually working at the Queen Charlotte's Hospital for Obstetrics in London called Merton Sandler. And he knew... Uh, Joseph Knoll, who was a pharmacologist working in Budapest, who had developed a new molecule uh, called Deprinil, uh, which had been shown in behavioral models to be a powerful monoamine oxidase inhibitor. Now, at that point, um, monoamine oxidase inhibitors of the sort that had been used in the 50s to treat depression uh, were contraindicated for use with L-DOPA because they caused terrible uh, cheese effects and high blood pressure effects. So it was a bit of a risk to try a new monoamine oxidase inhibitor, even if it was claimed that it was selected. So Merton Sandler went over to Budapest and he brought, uh, uh, Noel gave him a, a, a polythene package full of white powder and I remember Merton had a, one of these huge flashes kind of Macs, a sort of a bit, bit like the Mac, Harold yeah, Wilson. That's suspicious. Yeah, with big pockets <laughs> on the inside. Um, and he, he, he just smuggled this powder through the British customs. And, you know, even that, as I recall, I mean, we didn't really think that this was a huge risk at that time. I mean, when he did it, it was kind of sort of normal. And then uh, after that, we we got somebody to make up the stuff into some capsules, which they did free at the Royal Free Hospital. And then we all took it ourselves um, for a week uh, and had some pharmacological studies done on ourselves. And that, that uh, I think, started me on a, a, a sort of quest for to find new cures for Parkinson's disease, which 
which has really continued throughout my career. Um, and of course, I owe. I always say when people ask me, looking back on my career, what what I think is my most notable achievement, and I always say apomorphine. And now, of course, I didn't discover apomorphine. Um, it's a drug that's more than 100 years old, but we managed to resurrect it and bring it back into clinical practice. And it's the only um, thing I've ever done that I think has really massively helped uh, patients because it's actually relieved uh, handicap. Uh, and so it's a translated piece of research, if, if you like, from basic pharmacology. And I owe Burroughs a little bit for that from his descriptions in Naked Lunch about what he called uh, the junk vaccine. And, and coming back, I suppose, to the previous team, do you think a young Andrew Lee starting out today could get past the bureaucrats and, you know, self-experiment and develop such treatments? I think it would be really difficult. I think you'd have to be even more... I mean, whereas whereas we didn't think we were doing anything, it wasn't difficult at that time. So I, it wasn't anything... I, exceptional what we were doing. I mean, I think to do it now, you'd really need to be uh, uh, single-minded, believe very much in what you're doing. And one of the main difficulties nowadays is that all the drugs that uh, are potentially new therapies are all controlled by the pharmaceutical industry. And, and what they can do is controlled by lawyers. So lawyers are actually dictating the research agenda. So even if the pharmaceutical industry um, would give us some of their compounds to try, um, you, you get stuck through legal issues and, you know, who's going to take the indemnity if, if one of the patients sues and this sort of thing. So I think the, the, the risk-averse nature of society has certainly um, held back research. And I think in, in our own field of Parkinson's disease, there's certainly no... Uh, room for complacency when, when when we think that the the most effective treatment by far that we've got uh, to manage the disease is more than 50 years old. And I mean, a cynic could argue, I suppose, that a lot of what's happened in the world of Parkinson's in recent generations is kind of rehashing and fine-tuning some of the breakthroughs in previous generations. I suppose you alluded to earlier on, I guess, that a lot of the effective treatments that we have for Parkinson's have either come directly or indirectly from the natural world, thinking about the anticholinergics, Levodopa, as you mentioned, apomorphine. I, I think you at least seem to still have the appreciation of the need to get back to the jungle, as it were, in search of, a, search of new perspectives. Could you tell the listeners a bit about your own uh, Amazonian explorations? Well, yeah, well, in the 60s, it was very different from now. I mean, everybody, there was no, of course, no internet. And uh, everybody read the same books. Um, one of the other books that I read was Doors of Perception by Aldous Huxley. And... Um, uh, Huxley was interviewed um, about his own masculine experiences on British television, on Panorama, and you know, people, if they're interested, can uh, see the interview on YouTube now. And um, he, he was asked by the interviewer uh, which group of um, individuals in society would benefit most um, from taking hallucinogenic drugs. And without hesitation, he said university professors. Uh, and the reason he said that was that they uh, had the most rigid structures of, of, of any other group of individuals. So they thought they knew everything about a particular issue and their minds were closed to outside issues. And he felt that um, taking 
mescaline could break down some of these barriers and allow for uh, new understandings uh, and new imaginations that most university professors, as, they, as they'd gone on in their careers, uh, had started to forget. So when I began to tread water uh, in my early 60s, uh, I got the opportunity to... Um, to go to see a shaman in the Amazon jungle in a place called Leticia, which is on the Colombian-Brazilian uh, border. Uh, and I was introduced to the medicine lady who was called Donna Angelica uh, and had the opportunity to take uh, ayahuasca. Now, uh, Burroughs had, after he'd shot his common-law wife, Joan Volmer, uh, was agonizing over whether he'd done it deliberately or by accident, went on a quest into the uh, Colombian jungle to take Yache in the 50s. Uh, and I think although he always warned of the dangers of taking psychedelics, it had a profound influence on his, um, write, his subsequent writing and the development of the cut-up-and-paste technique. So... In a sense, I was following my uh, alter ego, Burroughs, in an inverse way. So he'd, he'd wanted to be a doctor and had started by taking psychedelic drugs. I'd been scared of taking psychedelic drugs until my brain was sufficiently fixed and mature to resist psychosis <laughs> and flashback. Uh, and so I, I finally plucked up courage to, to take it. And um, I think it gave me more courage to... Uh, do things that I would have considered very risky to do before and to speak out uh, uh, more about certain things which I felt quite strongly about. So in that sense, I think it was a, a positive experience for me. Um, people have said to me, well, you know, you're, you're an eminent urologist. Should you be recommending taking psychedelic drugs? Well, uh, fortunately, I can fall back on the noble tradition of uh, neurologists taking psychedelic drugs. Um, Charcot took, belonged to the Club des Hashishia uh, in Paris and took hashish when he was uh, a young man. Weir Mitchell, uh, who was keen to understand visual hallucinations, uh, writes a lot about his mescaline experiences. Uh, and one of my teachers, MacDonald Critchley, in 1927, who was very interested in mechanisms of visual hallucinations, also took mescaline. So I'm just, I just say I'm following in a, a tradition of neurological experimentation when I'm asked about that. I'm not recommending that people take psychedelic drugs. Uh, on the other hand, I don't think psychedelic drugs should be banned. And I'm quite pleased that... Um, there's a renewed interest in their potential as therapeutic agents, particularly in psychiatry. Do you think that's something that, particularly in neurology, where, you know, weaving narratives and sort of deductive reasoning and detective work like Sherlock Holmes and searching for the meaning in the stories of the neurologically ill, as you mentioned in your book, do you think that erasing the line between literature and science is more easily erased in neurological disciplines or is it sort of a lesson for all of the disciplines? I mean, it is certainly erased in psychiatry. I think the the psychiatrists are much more open to this, and in a sense, I think uh, all doctors are writer or, or potential writers. And of course, I don't need to tell either of you. I mean, there's a great tradition of doctor writers, um, so that we 
we're attracted to narrative and of course we have a lot of experience in it and uh, what what is uh, novel writing but narrative and um, one, one of the things I learned from my first meetings with Oliver Sacks were that Oliver always recommended that you read the original descriptions of disease um, and he he felt that these were more lively uh, and that he remembered much more if he went back to the original source of a, a clinical description. And of course, those early descriptions by Charcot and Gowers and so on from the 19th century, so some of the descriptions of disease read very much like novels. And of course, you and you can read about disease in novels too, neurological disease in novels. So I, I think one of the other pleasing things, I think, is the, um, the coming together again, and it's been happening about for the last 15, 20 years, of neurology and psychiatry, because I do think uh, that these should be one in many ways. The only problem with it is that um, it's all being subverted by functional imaging, so that instead of people self-experimenting or thinking outside the box, uh, it's as if functional imaging everything is going to solve all these uh, all the problems of the brain and I, I'm very I have to say I'm very skeptical about whether doing functional imaging particularly on normal people is going to tell us anything much about um, neurological disease and its cause. Just thinking of the overlap I guess between neurology and psychiatry another one of your great achievements one of many great achievements was your seminal work describing the dopamine dysregulation syndrome, this kind of addictive behaviour towards dopaminergic medications. I think I've discovered a new uh, syndrome in you, though. I think it's compulsive modesty, Andrew. Uh, throughout the book, you seem to be passing on or deflecting praise for any of your breakthroughs to your mentors, including uh, Burroughs. Uh, as uh, you know, uh, the, the, the dopamine dysregulation syndrome is now internationally called the Lee syndrome, yet you never actually mention this eponym in the book. So, uh, I think it's like a testament to your humility, which is certainly vanishing in today's world. And um, I think coming back full circle, I recall a line in your book where you say that patients were my teachers. And I think this kind of humility is a useful lesson to all of us, I guess, in this increasingly technologically reliant modern medicine scanning uh, at all costs approach. Yeah, and, and that, uh, I mean, we haven't talked in this discussion about brain banking, but I think um, attending post-mortems as a student uh, teaches you humility and modesty because he, mm. one realises how, how often we got it wrong, even when we prided ourselves as being great diagnosticians. And it's interesting. I mean, that's a nice compliment that you've given me, uh, Sean, really, because um, in this year of the bicentenary of James Parkinson's essay on the shaking palsy. Um, one of the things I highlight when I'm talking about his essay was the the modesty in which the, the way it was written uh, and, and how much modesty there was in his seminal landmark contribution. And I think that's something else uh, that's gone out of a lot of uh, modern scientific writing. There's a, there's a sort of uh, hubristic arrogance about, about it and, uh, uh, and also in peer review systems, uh, I think, which needs to be choked if possible, but I don't know how we stop it. But 
On that note, um, it's been really fantastic having you both here on the podcast, and yeah, I think that's a, a good ending for a good ending for the for the podcast. A slight word of warning in terms of yeah. peer review. And um, can, can I end yeah. with reiterating how much I enjoyed the book, and I think Andrew yes. throughout the book and your life in general, you have fulfilled Burroughs' desire for this arbitrary line, as Liz described, between literature and science to be erased. And I'd like to thank Prof again oh, on behalf of all his mentees for the honour of being part of the Andrew Lee's experiment. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening to the JNMP podcast, this edition with Professor Andrew Lees and Dr. Sean O'Sullivan. Of course, you can read um, Sean's review of the book, Mentored by a Madman, The William Burroughs Experiment, on our JNMP website, jnmp.bmj.com. And of course, um, purchase the book in any good bookstore. And thank you so much for listening.